Good afternoon and welcome to Redneck Radio, the podcast for people with ears. Normally, during this part of the podcast, I would then play my awesome intro song, which I recorded myself. But I feel like it's not quite capturing the essence of what I want this podcast podcast to be. So what I want you to do is to give me some time to come up with a new song, intro song, that really encapsulates uh, Redneck Radio. Because I feel like I could do that. I just need a little bit more time. So if you want to hear the song, though, go back to an old podcast and play it right now. But we're going to move on straight into the material because we got a lot of good stuff to talk about today. You know, we're we're in that weird moment between Christmas and New Year's Eve where it's kind of like this, this nether world. I'm not sure what day it is. I'm not sure if I should be going into work or not. I'm not sure what I'm doing because... It's like the twilight zone between Christmas Day and New Year's Eve. Now, after New Year's Eve, the relentless march of time begins once again. But during this kind of flexible moment, it's hard to know what to do. And so we got to get right into all of this news so that I can kind of help you find your footing again before 2016 hits us hard. I hope you had a great Christmas. You know, my Christmas was pretty good. I don't, I don't do a lot of presents. I got mostly books. But I love Christmas. I love the way that Christmas looks. I love the lights. I love the sounds. I love the smells. You know, people cooking stuff for me to eat because I, I eat out only. I don't really make any food. I mostly just let people make food for me because I'm a modern man. But I love Christmas and I love everything that comes with it, except for presents. I'm not really a fan of presents. Now, I'm a grown man, so I don't wait for Christmas to come around before I get something. If I want something as a grown man, I just pay for it right then and there. I don't wait for the 25th of December to come along so I can get something. And the other thing I often think about, at what point were we tricked into thinking presents were the pinnacle of Christmas? Because it sucks that there's so much going on, but really all of the focus is on what you may receive for Christmas as a present. And that kind of irritates me. And part of me thinks that there might be a conspiracy somewhere in corporate America where men and women are sitting around in expensive suits in a darkly lit room. And they're sitting around a mahogany table and they're conspiring how to trick you into having to buy your kids the next Furby or the next Tickle Me Elmo. And that, that I kind of picture that that's what takes place, you know, every summer. They're thinking, how early can we start Christmas? And how can we trick these parents into having to buy these kids these toys? And the worst part is that when there is a new toy that comes out, you have to buy your kids that toy. Once those kids see the newest, coolest toy, they must have it. And they will annoy you beginning in October. They will annoy you like a smoke detector with a low battery power. Uh, alarm going off that's attached to a 15-foot ceiling. They will annoy you as much as that until you buy them the present. And God forbid you do not buy the present. Because if you do not buy the present, if they don't find it underneath that tree, well then all the the warm and fuzzy feelings that you've paid for so dearly up to that point will be wiped out. The kids won't remember the many gifts they opened prior to that that made them happy and joyous. What they will remember is the one gift you failed to purchase. And it's kind of crazy to me to think that all of our good intentions and selflessness is basically held hostage by kids on the brink of meltdown. 
But other than that, I love Christmas. And for the most part, my Christmas went pretty well. I had one kid that had a meltdown, but that's pretty good out of three. You know, a 33% meltdown rate isn't actually too shabby. And so my Christmas was great, and I don't want to complain too much, and that's my gripe. Uh, uh, one and done right there. For Christmas, I got an additional gift. As you know, I love the lights and I love the trees and all that, but the one thing I really hope for every year is a white Christmas. There is nothing better than looking out of my window Christmas morning and seeing fresh snow on the ground. And this year, you know, we got 10 inches of fresh snow between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And to me, snow serves more of a purpose than just landscape decorations because snow is great for hunting lions and I love lion hunting. If you've never looked at a lion in a tree, then you are really missing out on one of life's greatest experiences because mountain lions are amazing creatures. In my mind, mountain lions are the most majestic animal God has ever pieced together using his celestial Legos. And sometimes when you walk up to that tree and you, you look, you search in the branches for the lion and then you catch sight of him. And when he's looking right at you with those angry, fierce eyes, I mean, it's as if they could see right into your soul. If a priest had those same eyes, he would be able to get a confession from even the most hardened criminal. And when they look at you with those eyes, either for a minute there, especially when you very first see your first couple lions, it is somewhat terrifying because you think this lion is going to leap down and tear my throat out like, uh, you know, the main character on Roadhouse, but with his mouth instead of his hand. And I mean, seeing a lion in the tree is an experience everybody should have because it is just awe-inspiring. You will gain a new appreciation for wildlife when you see one of these sleek, you know, muscle-filled animals with those piercing eyes in the trees. However, most of the time when you have a lion treed, they actually just sit there uh, on those branches with the dismissive look on their face, much like a house cat sitting on top of a couch. And it's crazy to me that they seem so unattached to the current situation when they've got five bloodthirsty hounds barking at the tree and a strange human standing and talking uh, right underneath them. You would think that the lion would be terrified, but actually they're very cool under pressure in a lot of cases. And they'll just sit there and stare at you with like a, you know, what are you doing kind of look on your face as if they're about to take a nap. And that's because they are actually pretty tired. Lions don't run very far. And part of the reason I've been told is because they, they're not capable of running for long periods of time because of something to do with their lungs. I'm not a scientist, so I don't really know. And you sit there and you look at this lion in a tree, and it's a really beautiful sight, but it's ruined by the hounds underneath. Now, the dogs are trying to climb the tree because nothing would make them happier than to eat a, a mountain lion. And it's crazy to think that uh, these dogs could kill this mountain lion, but they are the dogs are almost as vicious as those cats. And while those cats do look scary with their big claws and their sharp fangs, those dogs will tear up a cat if it falls down. It, it, I've seen a couple really gnarly fights between dogs and cats, and they don't always end great for the cat or the dog. It's really a toss-up. Who's going to get hurt worse? So the dogs are the most annoying part because you would love to be able to just turn them off so you didn't have to listen to them bark while you stared at this majestic animal. But they're underneath there. They're trying to climb the tree. They are barking so loud that you can't even think straight because it's just such a circus, so such a clamor. And, you know, they're 
they're smelly and they're they're horrible. And I like dogs, but there's just something about that moment where you feel like the dogs are ruining it. And what's interesting is that no matter how loud these dogs are, the men who run these hounds tend to be just as loud and boisterous as the dogs themselves. I don't give a lot of credence to the idea that dog owners can take on the characteristics of their dogs. But in this case, I think there might be some truth behind it. Because the people who own and run the hounds, they are constantly screaming at their dogs. One of their favorite uh, phrases to use when yelling at the dogs is shut up or shut the f up or shut your mouth. They scream shut up at their dogs almost constantly. Especially when they have, you know, half their dogs out chasing the lion and they've got some other dogs cooped up in the back of the truck in the, in the dog box. And that dog in the dog box is barking loudly because, you know, he wants to be out there in pursuit. And when that happens, the dog owner tends to go a bit crazy and he will scream at that dog and he will scream as loud as four or five barking dogs. But you know what? This odd couple of houndsmen and dogs or hunter and dogs, this companionship has been around for quite some time. And a recent article just came out that shows or uses research to show that the relationship between man and dog has been pretty strong for about 33,000 years, which is crazy to think about. Now, the article states that in the beginning, we used to scavenge side by side, side with the dogs. But then I think that we became aware that we could actually use these dogs as a tool and they quickly became domesticated and we quickly realized that we could use these dogs and their skills, which, you know, is viciousness and smelling. They've got a great sense of smell. We could use their skills for hunting. And that's kind of what we did a long, long time ago. Now, not so long, long time ago, there was a man named Xenophon who is an ancient Greek historian, soldier, mercenary, philosopher. And about 2,500 years ago, he wrote a book on hunting, which I, don't, I haven't done the research, but maybe one of the oldest books on hunting. And part of his book is actually on how to train and hunt with dogs, which is kind of crazy to think about. 2,500 years ago, this man wrote a book on hunting, and he created several chapters about hunting with dogs. Now, he recommends that you use your dogs to hunt deer, hares, and boars. He doesn't recommend using your dogs to hunt lions and bears because he feels like those are too dangerous. His actual method for, you know, capturing bears or hunting bears is to build a trap like a 13-year-old would build a trap, you know, dig a hole and cover it up, and then use a goat to lure in the bear and then have it fall into the hole, and then, you know, you can stab it with the spear, which actually would be a very interesting. I would, I would definitely be interested in seeing someone hunt a bear by digging a giant hole in the ground. I think that would be highly entertaining and it would be, you know, it would hark back to the roots of hunting according to Xenophon. Now, Xenophon, he wrote this book and he actually had a lot of good tips that we still use today, like sending out one dog, you know, to make sure that he, he follows the track. And once it's fresh enough, send out the other dogs. But he also has some strange old timey things that don't really, we don't really talk about anymore. For example, he claims that the boar's tusks are so hot during pursuit that, and I quote, they are actually on fire whenever he is irritated. And he also talks about how the boar's tusk gets so hot that they will singe the dog's hair. I don't know if this was maybe like an ancient 
boar thing. Like maybe old school boars used to have these flaming tusks. And maybe through some kind of breeding, we've lost the awesome fire tusk that once existed in the ancient world. But as far as I know, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, maybe send in a video or a link to a YouTube video of a boar with its tusk on fire. But I don't think we have flaming tusks anymore. What I found interesting, though, when I was reading through his book on hunting, is that even then, thousands of years ago, houndsmen actually spent most of their time yelling at their dogs. And in several instances in the book, he gives the kind of shouts you should yell at your dog for encouragement. Now, he says that you should exhort your dog by using such and such a phrase, which is a modern day way of saying you should curse at your dog like a longshoreman. But it's funny to know that even back then, it sounds like hunters who use dogs actually spent more time yelling at their dogs than they did hunting. And that, to me, just kind of ties in. You know, it's like this tie-in with modern-day hunting to see that something like this hasn't changed in 2,500 years. At the end of the book, Xenophon claims, Those who are fond of the pursuit will receive many benefits from it. For they will secure health for their bodies, great keenness of sight and hearing, and a later old age. I, I wonder if Xenophon was to meet some of these modern-day hound hunters, what he would think. Because to me, a lot of the hunters that I meet up in the mountains, they look more like meth addicts than Spartan warriors. Which is what he was basically saying you would become if you were a houndsman or a, a hunter who used dogs. He was saying that eventually you'd become strong and you'd be fit and you'd be able to deal with the challenges of the wilderness. And he was picturing that these men who hunt, hunted with dogs, they would become Spartan warriors. But to me, a lot of these hunters that I meet, they look like, you know, methadone addicts. And I, one of the stories that kind of reinforces this whole stereotype, because it is a stereotype, obviously, all dog hunters aren't like that, is a story a friend of mine once told me about a lion hunt he was on. He told me that early, early in the morning, he uh, pulled up to meet his lion hunting guide in this parking lot down a deserted road, and there was only one other car in the parking lot, it was an old Toyota, and it had really fogged up windows, like you could not see into the car. And as he got out to inspect the car, he noticed that the car was also rocking slightly. Uh, he was worried that, you know, maybe this car was occupied by two teenage lovers, you know, in the throes of passion. But since there was no other car around, he decided that, you know, he had to knock on this window because there was also a good chance it could be the lion hunter in there. Now the door opened up and a mixture of cigarette smoke and steam poured out of the top of the door, open door, and it formed a small cloud over the truck. And he said the sight before him was a very confusing one because when he looked into the truck, there was a very skinny man in almost a complete state of undress laying across the front seats while three or four dogs kind of clamored around uh, him jumping over the seat going into that little back compartment. And it became apparent that the man had slept the whole night in his car uh, with his dogs. And his dogs were the heaters because he didn't want to leave his car running. And he says that the smell that came from that truck was just the thickest, most rancid smell you can imagine. I mean, imagine a dog kennel completely enclosed 
uh, for about eight hours with man and dog in the same room. So the they made hasty introductions, and the guy had shut the door, and he got dressed. And then when he emerged, you know, the dogs came out and did their business in the parking lot. And let me tell you, one of the worst parts about hunting with dogs is they take the smelliest dumps you have ever smelled. And then if they haven't been eating right, they spend the whole day running in front of you farting up a storm and their gas smells so bad that it makes you want to retch. So the man opened the door and the dogs hopped out and the man was, wasn't wearing much more than he had worn in the truck. I mean, he had pants on boots, a hoodie and a light jacket and it was zero degrees outside. Now the group set out quite quickly and, and got onto a line track real quick and the guide and the dogs took off. And the crazy thing was, as my friend remarked, was that this guy could actually keep up with his dogs. And they don't think it was because he was super fit, but more likely because he was receiving the aid of some kind of illegal substance, which he never really got down to what that was. But he said the man was very high strung. Eventually, over time, the dogs and the guide disappeared. And my friend could not find him. And he himself was lost in, you know, woods he had never been in before. So he circled around, spent a lot of time, eventually found his car. And then he waited well into the night for this ill-dressed, ill-equipped man to show back up with the dogs, but they never did. So he assumed that, you know, the guy had gone out there and died. So the, the sheriff was called uh, and, you know, they did some quick searching, but it was getting dark and the guy was still nowhere to be found. About a day and a half later, he showed up many miles away in the outskirts of Albuquerque with his dogs. He was still alive. And from what they could tell, he was still chasing lions. Now, part of that story reinforces what Xenophon said about uh, these lion hunters. They're tough as nails, but they are also some of the strangest characters you will ever find in hunting. Now, I've heard some people object to dogs being used in such a time-honored way. They call using dogs to hunt other prey as cruel. But, I mean, this is a practice that's been going on for as long as dogs and humans have been getting together. The first relationship was all built around hunting. What's more cruel, genetically altering your dog to a state of mild retardation and physical uselessness, or allowing a dog to perform its natural-born task of chasing prey, battling with other beasts, and running free? And I actually find it quite hypocritical when a pet owner at all criticizes hunting. I mean, here they are supporting the practice of canine eugenics. You know, they imprison their malformed dogs, which have been genetically altered to be cute, docile, and ultimately worthless. And they want to lecture me on how to treat an animal. And even in some cases, they put these little dogs that are just an abomination to nature. They put these little abominations in these shoulder bags and they towed them around as if they're some kind of fashion accessory. As if you get a little dog when you buy a diamond necklace at Tiffany's or you buy a purse at Coach and with it comes a little cute dog that's really totally absolutely worthless. Now, some of these people who have dogs and shoulder bags, they also happen to appear in commercials for PETA, and they like to lecture us on the ethical animal treatment. And I always think, oh, yeah, go ahead. Please lecture me on the proper treatment of animals while you yourself carry around an overpriced, imprisoned, genetic Frankenstein whose balls you've snipped off. 
I mean, ignore the fact that you are perhaps treating an animal in the worst way possible. Let's ignore that. And let's and, and feel free to tell me how I should treat animals. Because, you know, who am I? I'm just a stupid redneck, and I wouldn't understand it anyway. But, uh, yeah, feel free to tell me how I mistreat animals while you've got one imprisoned like some kind of eunuch right there on your shoulder. And you know what? I talk a lot about animals on this podcast. And I talk a lot about how people don't really understand animals, especially people who don't hunt. And one of the things that I, I saw on the news this week was an article and it was talking about a very dangerous animal. Now, if I were to ask you a question, and I'm going to right now, who do you think kills more humans every year, sharks or cows? Now, if you said sharks, you would probably be with the majority because you look at sharks, they look like they're nothing but man killers. But actually, cows kill more people than uh, sharks do. And there was this huge article in Gizmodo that talks about cows being deadlier than you ever thought. And the crazy thing is, is that not only do cows kill people, but they work together to kill people, which to me is very unnerving. Because let me tell you, when I'm shed hunting and I have to go through a bunch of cows, I spend most of my time wandering through those cows, screaming at them and cursing at them because I hate cows, especially when they get in the way of my hunt or my shed hunt. And so after I read this article, I realized, you know what? Here's another animal I know nothing, almost nothing about. And maybe, just maybe, I should treat, uh, treat it with a little bit more respect. And they don't just kill you by trampling you. According to this article, one of their favorite tricks is to toss you up like a matador. And they throw you up in the air, and then they let you land. They throw you up in the air, and then they let you land. And then maybe they trample you. And they have a couple stories in the article about people who had, you know, near-death experiences with herds of cows. And it's kind of terrifying to think that these seemingly mindless bovines are actually coordinated killers. And I don't know why they haven't made a video about this or a movie about this on the Sci-Fi channel because they've got Sharknado, which was ridiculous, but maybe it's time for the Menacing Cow movie to be made, you know, about, you know, cows in the night, cows in the dark, killing people, because it turns out that cows are actually more dangerous than sharks. I am always dismayed by how little I actually know about things. And this discovery of the cows uh, being these killers, and obviously the numbers of people they kill isn't really that high. I mean, sharks don't actually even kill that many people. But it's kind of amazing how little you know about the animals around you. But the comforting thing, to me at least, is that we as hunters know way more about animals than all these other people who claim to be fighting for the animal. I mean, you don't know anything about a mountain lion really, until you've seen one in the wild. And you don't know anything about our relationship, our ancient relationship with dogs, until you use them to go and hunt. And for me, it's something satisfying to know that by participating in these hunting activities, I'm gaining actual, real information that makes me superior to all these people who claim to be protecting the animals. And believe me when I tell you that most animals don't really need our protection. Obviously, I don't want to see them exterminated because I love seeing animals and it would be a shame if my kids couldn't see a mountain lion or, you know, they couldn't see a polar bear or whatever. But there is nothing that gets you closer to an animal than hunting. 
And I think that that is one of the best things about hunting. And that's kind of why I like making this podcast because I like exposing the stupidity behind these people who claim to fight so hard for animals they know almost nothing about. So anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, Like I said, I hope you had a great Christmas. And I hope that your New Year's Eve expectations are really low because people tend to think that New Year's is going to be the greatest experience of their life. And the one thing we all have in common, I think, is that on New Year's Day, we are all equally disappointed by how New Year's Eve turned out. So I hope that you have a good New Year's Eve and a New Year's Day, and I hope that your return to work, you know, in January isn't really horrible. I hope it's like a soft blow. Anyway, thank you for listening. Please uh, leave us positive reviews on iTunes. Uh, Leave any comments you have on our blog at redneckradio.blogspot.com. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.